Hello, and thanks for listening to Healthcare 360, a podcast by Beth Israel Leahy Health. I'm Rob Fields, the Chief Clinical Officer here at Beth Israel Leahy. And I have two new friends and colleagues joining me today, uh, Sandra Gaffney and Liz Clark. And we're going to talk about a couple of different things. We'll spend some time talking about what they do, which they'll introduce us to in a minute, but also about driving change. You guys have had a little bit of that? We sure have. Yeah. Well, let's start with some introductions, though, if you don't mind. Uh, Sandra, you want to start? My name is Sandra Gaffney. I am the nursing director of the BILH Transfer Center, and I have been working at BIDMC for about 19 years now. Started my career there as a staff nurse on a general medicine floor. It's actually how I first met my medical director partner here, Lish Clark, and I got really into quality improvement. It was something that you'd be a staff nurse on the floor and you'd say, why isn't this just more simple? There's a more efficient way to do this. And that really drove me to quality improvement, which drove me to my career now in nursing leadership and eventually into the transfer center. That's awesome. This is a big question, but probably in 19 years at the BI, you've been through a merger with Beth Israel and the Deaconess, right? I came shortly after that. Okay. Yep. But so on the heels of it, so still yes. doing, and Lish, maybe you as well, like you were around those times? Yeah. So my name is Lish Clark. I'm the medical director for the BILH Transfer Center, and I came to BI in 2007. So it was after the merger, but we were going through new leadership with Paul Levy and a lot of sort of reorganizational change. Yeah. We were really embracing lean change management. That was sort of the Kool-Aid that had been drank by the institution. But my pathway is a little bit different than Sanders. I started at BI, trained there, spent five years at Duke sort of learning about a whole other separate and distinct academic medical center, really focusing on things like medical education and quality improvement. And so when I came back to BI, had an opportunity to kind of use those skills, but think about how I wanted to apply them and kind of pivoted from pure medical education and quality improvement to more QI and operations. Mm -hmm. And had a couple different roles in hospital medicine and ultimately saw this opportunity to work with Sandra and take some of what I was doing in patient flow and operations and standardization and trying to think about how to take that to a broader level and actually impact bigger change. And so then this opportunity came up to work with Sandra, I kind of jumped. And so you guys both started the system just after that initial merger, and then you fast forward you know, a decade or so, I guess, maybe a little more than that, and then get into the merger of the system. And then the pandemic hit. Can you talk to me a little bit, since I wasn't here, about that, the transition of the merger itself and how your work changed, if at all, during that time, and then how it maybe changed again during the pandemic? Sure. It definitely accelerated the work that we were doing in the transfer center. So as a really baby new system, we were just starting to talk amongst the three larger facilities about how do we think about moving patients within these institutions when there isn't space at one of them. And we started with tiny baby steps and really just looking at ICU capacity. And it was done all with boots on the ground, phone calls from the frontline teams. And we were doing that for not even a year when we suddenly had this pandemic and this capacity crisis, and we needed to step on the gas. And I would say that all of the facilities within the network worked with us and did that. And we started looking at all sorts of patients and load balancing throughout the network and getting really good at it really fast with really not a lot of structure or system support behind it, just a lot of boots on the ground, teams doing the right things for patients. And that was genuinely accelerated by the crisis that we were facing in healthcare. Yeah. I mean, I think the story of BILH over these first four and a half years is really that, right? People trying to figure it out, the boots on the ground folks trying to figure it out in the midst of crisis a year into a merger where you haven't had time to establish relationships and trust and all those other things. How did both of your backgrounds, it sounds like you both come at this from a quality improvement point of view, 
and both come at it from being on the floors and working with teams. How did you approach the work maybe to start with? And then maybe similar question, how did that background help you at the time of the pandemic and the crisis? I would say the quality improvement background and the knowledge that I have about standardization and standard work was the reason why we could perform. We were making daily changes and in order to coach a team of, it's a smaller team in healthcare really, but a team of 40 people to be able to do something different today than they did yesterday for multiple days and weeks and months on end, it really takes a standard approach. And I think that was what I personally, as the nursing leadership of this department, leaned on during that time. And what about the physicians? Because I imagine physicians have a different type of sensitivity, right, as it relates to transfers. So Sandra actually started a year or so before me. I actually entered this role in 2020, sort of six (laughs) months into the pandemic. And in some ways, that was easier in that everybody had an aligned purpose. Mm -hmm. There wasn't nearly the different stakeholder agendas that we face in the real world that everybody was really kind of aligned on. The hospital had kind of emptied out and filled up with COVID patients. And so I feel like initially it was somewhat easier because some of the regular agenda was put to the wayside. I think when we started to peel that back and return to normal operations, that actually got harder. Daily change and sort of daily iteration on, okay, well, are we going back to how much of normal now? And how much can we absorb? And so I think it was a slow growing, I actually knew a lot of our sort of connections across the network as I was building some of my external to medicine partnerships, even at Mm -hmm. the IDMC. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, I think maybe my growth into it was maybe easier than yours. (laughs) (laughs) That's come up a lot, actually, in these first episodes of the podcast, how in all the chaos that COVID brought, there was actually a high degree of focus and to some degree simplicity, for lack of a better word, that allowed people to do things that were previously much more difficult, right? Because you were focused both in terms of the crisis, but also in terms of the subject matter, your operations. You could focus on this one condition when 98% of the entire industry is consumed by one condition. You can really get granular on operations and design. And then when the complexity came back, it wasn't just complexity of medical conditions, but also it sounds like of relationships too, right? And I think systems. relationships and we, you know, frankly had to deal with a backlog. There was such a backlog of things to manage and people that had very appropriately stepped back and said, I'll put my priority second and I'll put these patients in a queue. We're starting to say, you know, I've got all these numbers backed up of people we need to bring in. How do I do this? Mm-hmm. And there really wasn't a framework. We sort of had to create it and do our best to really think about how do we triage the most critical priorities and work with a lot of these physician stakeholder teams and try to hear them all equitably. Right. Maybe we spend a little time getting into the weeds of what the transfer center is, because I think some folks that happen to be in healthcare and the audience for this podcast is varied. So we'll have folks that are in the weeds of hospital and health system operations and other folks that may not be. So can you tell me a little bit, or for those folks that are maybe less informed, what a, I would say a typical transfer center function is, and then also how systemness sort of affects that, right? I'll stop there. You guys take it from there. Sure. I'll start, jump in, Lish. Transfer center is two functions. It really is allowing for transfer of patients who are lower level of care to a higher level of care, and it's access. And that's what the whole pandemic was from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. It was access for patients who are suffering from COVID, but then it shifted into access for patients who, like Lish was just saying, hadn't 
gotten what they needed for a number of months and figuring out how do we provide access to these patients. And so on a regular transfer center day, it is access to patients who need care, a different care than they're having today. And it's a challenge with the lack of bed capacity. The other part of the role is bed management within your own organization. So patients who are coming in through whatever mechanism they're coming into the hospital and need a bed by the end of the day. So the transfer patients are within that pool of patients. It's a little bit more detailed as to how they get in. There's a lot of coordination and making sure that we are correctly triaging them and bringing them in in the right order. And so it sounds like if you are, we think about the BI as we call Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Leahy as our two largest systems, I imagine in the classic sense, when they were standalone, they were mostly focused on transfers in for the most part. And I'm going to guess, based on what you're saying now as a system, one of, I feel like one of the new leaps is transfers out, perhaps, but other parts of the system for the purposes of improving access. Is that right? That's correct. What we've been working on are all different types of transfers. They come in all different shapes and sizes now. There's transfers in, there's transfers out from the larger academic medical centers, and there's also a transfer that is at a hospital right now asking for a transfer to B hospital because they're just calling the transfer center and actually the expert staff there doing the work say we actually think that there might be a better hospital C and that would suit your needs and it's going to suit your needs a lot faster than we could at hospital B. Yeah. Lish, I know you're involved at the state level and this is not just a Massachusetts problem. This is a what feels like a universal problem on ED boarding and volume coming through the emergency room driven by all sorts of things, perhaps pent up demand, workforce challenges, etc. How do you see this work trying to impact that? You know, it's interesting. We got pulled in to speak to another big health system here in Massachusetts because they're facing very similar challenges that we are. And we shared some of these strategies that we had been doing, thinking about how do we put the patient at the right level of care. That doesn't always mean bringing them into a tertiary medical center. Often Mm -hmm. it means moving them to someplace closer or closer to their families that can offer what they Mm -hmm. need and kind of being really creative about how to get people access to things. And it's interesting, when we first spoke with them, the conversation sort of was, how do you do this? This is impossible. And now when I'm on these state calls, they're talking about doing very similar initiatives and having some success with them. And so it does seem like these concepts of moving patients within a system of care to the right level of care and doing it in a way where it isn't just a single pathway. It isn't just A to B. It's, well, should we consider C to D or C round trip to D? (laughs) Um, And so I think what I've heard across the state level, not only is so many areas, particularly in the southern part of the state, struggling to deal with the demand on a daily basis, but that more and more places are thinking about how do we manage overwhelming demand on a daily basis and how do we be a little bit more creative and thoughtful and patient-centered on getting patients what they need. And when you Talk about the patients, obviously the most important stakeholder in all this. An individual patient will make a choice to go to hospital A. I'll keep using the letter (laughs) technique that you guys are employing because it's probably the easiest to visualize. So I decide I'm a patient. I'm going to go to hospital A into the emergency room for whatever reason, whatever condition I might have. I'm going to imagine convincing that person that hospital B even though on paper it looks more convenient because it's closer to their community, et cetera, convincing them that Hospital B is a better place to go is challenging, right? That is one of the biggest challenges that's been articulated and also kind of normalizing it for providers. Providers, this is sort of new to them or at least relatively new over the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. again, accelerated by COVID. I think it's much easier for patients who have been at 
several different hospitals and to be able to articulate, oh, you've been to hospital B. How is that experience? We think we can get you a spot there and you can get XYZ there and these providers know you there. I think it is much harder to present the option of a hospital they've never been to before. It's just more disconcerting, I guess. I think that what often happens, what we don't have a lot of visibility to, is that patients present to community sites all day, every day, and are told, you can't get what you need here. We have to send you somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, I think patients have sort of evolved to say, I have to get somewhere else. And then there's sort of less autonomy in that decision for them. It's sort of necessity. And so I think there's variations on those two decision-making perspectives. And I imagine during COVID, it was a lot more have to. Like, we have to move you. We literally have no place to go. But as the pandemic has waned, I imagine we're back to more of a pitch effectively, right? Like we have to frame it correctly for the patients. And their families. And their families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as much a pitch like Liz said when you're saying you can't get what you need here. Right. But when you're saying, well, you could get what you need here, but you could also (laughs) get it here. And that's the more challenging conversation. Yeah. And my understand from both my experiences when I was at Sinai and from both of you during this journey, even sometimes when you say you can get it here, but you might have to wait a day or two or three, and you can get it immediately if you go down the road. That's still, I'd rather wait is often what what we hear, right? How does system play into this? If you told somebody you go to hospital B, and by the way, these are our doctors. You know, you came here because you trusted us. You're going to go here. You can also trust us there because those are also our physicians. Do people care? I think they do. I think I'm a hospitalist by training, and the group that I'm in right now actually staffs three or four of these hospitals, and I have worked at a bunch of them. So I know the ER docs. I know the inpatient docs. And so to be able to articulate to someone, listen, I know this person who's going to be helping on the other side. I'm going to give them a call, and I'm going to make sure they get Mm -hmm. all your information, and then I'm going to be available to them if there's any question that comes up that they can't see. Sharing that we have transparency to each other's medical records, I think sometimes makes people feel better. But I do think that by far the most reassuring thing to a patient, if it's a hospital they've already been to, even if they've been there for an appointment or it's near to their communities, I think something unknown is the scariest. Yeah, that's totally fair. We could probably talk about the operations of this for a long time, but I know we wanted to spend a lot of time thinking about the underlying components of driving this level of change in any system. But I think in particular, a new system is still trying to figure out its identity in lots of ways and building that each passing hard decision we make, right? We build a sense of culture and identity around that. You guys have been really a focus of a lot of change management. So if we can spend some time talking about that, and I'll start with asking, are you okay? <laughs> Did you, have you survived it? We're okay. I mean, we're I won't speak for Lish. I'm okay. We're okay. <laughs> um, yes, we have survived it, and it's been challenging and interesting and a great learning experience for me and I would say for the team, too, that does the work every day because we're all working at this at a leadership level, and like I've said before, they're in the weeds of the work, building relationships with the other frontline staff at other facilities every day, and they do a really great job at that. I would say from the beginning, there are so many people involved, and that becomes a major challenge with communication and hoping that everybody's hearing the same thing, articulating it the same way, but also hoping that they're interpreting it the same, I think Mm -hmm. is one of the major challenges. And then knowing that you're talking to a leader who then has to hear, interpret, and then disseminate (laughs) in the same way is one of the major challenges that I think I've seen us face. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
I was going to say, I think, you know, having done a lot of change initiatives on small scales, right? So Sandra and I've worked a lot on unit-based, even like mm -hmm. multi-unit-based within a hospital kind of change. There's one scale of communication. And I would say that when you're trying to communicate a message or a new way of doing things, it is the thing I think I learned over and over again is you can't say it enough. You actually can't communicate it enough that we keep saying the same concepts. It resonates with people pretty early, but it's really hard to spread change on this scale. And I'm sure you've experienced this mm -hmm. as a leader in changing health systems, but you can't say it enough. And you can't say it enough different ways and you can't share it enough with listening. It's the communication I feel like is major challenge. I had a former colleague at Sinai, Denise Prince, who would constantly remind us about the seven times seven ways. And it seemed to be the overarching theme of almost everything we're doing. When you think about the integration, I just had this conversation with somebody yesterday about another focus of change. It feels like you have to believe at its core that integration has value, I feel like, mm -hmm. despite the friction, the change management pieces. Do you think that that's true? Is that part of the sell? I guess I'm going back to, for some reason, I'm a salesy mood today, talk about pitches and sales pitches, but it feels like you have to believe that, don't the integration itself I, has value? So I think from a provider perspective, and you've probably experienced this, the disjointedness of healthcare is one of the biggest frustrations, both for providers and patients. I think one of the biggest advantages of integrating our hospitals is the immediate transparency of sharing information. And the ways we've patchworked together sharing information has sort of let us take little baby steps and crept us along. <laughs> but the idea of finally going live with one epic, I feel like that right. is being standing out there as this amazing opportunity for people to actually see how care has been delivered across all these hospitals mm -hmm. over 10 or 20 years. That to me is the biggest step that will really improve how care can be transparently shared. And I think from a command center perspective, we often think of you can sort of shine a light on one process in one hospital and do your very best to improve efficiency and standardization and all those things. But the opportunity to step back and put a floodlight across all these hospitals right. and actually move processes across that many places, your opportunities and your access is just so different and so multiplied. I think being able to get on Epic and use some of the Grand Central tools will enable so much improvement with integration. Yeah. Do you find that taking that same step, you have an opportunity to look at the individual processes across the environment and see how they sum up to the whole? But in doing that, the individual stakeholders that own each of those processes have to give something up. Do you find that I had another colleague at Sana used to talk about the stages of grief and use that for every part of change management? <laughs> do you feel like that's it? Like when you meet resistance or concern, what is that? Like what do you think people are going through in that process? It maybe seem obvious, but it certainly could be some grief. I think it's also that in healthcare we're focusing on so many different things and sometimes all at the same time. And when you say to somebody, well, you have to do this different, even when you may not have to give something up. So when I joined the transfer center just after we formed into a true transfer center at BIDMC mm -hmm. and we would talk to people about the change and actually be able to assure them that really nothing was going to change. And yet they still wondered what they were going to lose. And there is a part of it that is the stages of grief. And there's also just a part of it that's I have to do something different. Just different. Even if yeah. I'm not going to lose anything, it's different. And I can't fit <laughs> that into my day. Yeah. I can't it's think about that in yeah. my day today. I think that everyone in healthcare who has been here through pre-COVID and post-COVID, the cognitive overload <laughs> of 
constant change is real. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say in healthcare that you're going between sort of fast and slow thinking all the time, that very little of your job is automated. And a lot of it is multitasking and pivoting and constantly changing. And so adding anything to that stresses people out. Mm. And I think even if it's going to make things easier, I think at a time where there's just fatigue from change, I think it's hard to do that. I also think that there's an advantage, there's a flip side to it, that everybody's got frustrations or challenges with what they're doing. And if you come to them with change and a solution to one of the challenges they're facing, it tends to open a door. I would say that most of these conversations, even though we end up maybe in some ways disrupting or feeling disruptive to current state, it's pretty easy to find something that they're trying to fix that we might be able to help with. Almost like an exchange. Exactly. It's worth this friction because this other thing is going to get better. I think that's an important principle for sure. I think my experience has been that sometimes people will agree with you on the philosophy or at the ideological level, they will agree that, sure, we don't want a fractionated system, right? We want a single system where we can share information and move patients back and forth, but not at the expense of either my time, energy, or anything I created, right? Like, it just gets kind of hard. I was just going to say, I think that's part of the key to building relationships around this is as we're introducing more and more change, we have to keep those three things intact for people. Mm -hmm. And Part of that is not over-promising what you can deliver. Mm -hmm. So promising what you can actually deliver and then delivering on it. Mm -hmm. And that will help to build the relationships and help to break down some of those hesitations. That's a great point. Well, as we finish up, can you tell me a little bit about hopes and dreams for the Transfer Center? We're going through this initial stage of integration, but I know we're thinking about the future. What's next for you guys? It goes back to the very beginning. It's access. It's taking care of as many patients as possible in the right place so that more patients can receive the care that they need. And I think we've been building towards that for years. And I'm really excited at the future of being able to put together that, we call it a puzzle. We start mm-hmm. like we start the day with the puzzle all over the table. And by the end of the day, it gets put together every day. And we're using one hospital's beds to do that today. In the future, we can work more closely with our partners around the network and put together the larger puzzle for the largest amount of gain for our patients. I agree. I think that there's this incredible opportunity around bed management across so many hospitals and access and transparency to access and standardization of processes. I also think that this is sort of a more long-term perspective, but that healthcare is more and more going to be delivered outside of brick-and-mortar hospitals. And I actually love the idea of not only how we manage patients coming in and moving through, but how do we get them pieces of what's available in the hospital in more innovative ways. Right. I actually love thinking about some of the ideas we're doing around the new hospital at home program right. and some of the things we could do around remote monitoring. I love the ideas that we've done around round trips and maybe some creative observation units. Like I think that there is multiple ways to solve these problems. And I think the more we're willing to consider both how do we use these very high demand, limited resource beds, precious but but how do we, right, they are, but how do we get patients what they need with creative and patient-centered and family-centered kind of options? And I think that there's nothing like a crisis of demand to pressure innovation. And so I think, right, I think we are at this great opportunity in healthcare, out of chaos is opportunity. That's right. Well, thank you both, Sandra Lish, for the work that you're doing and your impact on the system and all the bruises and scrapes to show for it. <laughs> uh, but good luck to you both and what you're building in the future for the impact on the system. So, Thank thanks you so much thank for the you. opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Healthcare 360. And if folks have thoughts or ideas for future episodes, please leave comments and please be sure and rate us on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Thanks a lot.